Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. So a few weeks back, wizard yogi talk show host Russell Brand interviewed scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson on his podcast, Under the Skin. It's the November 1st, 2019 episode, and it's highly worth listening to. Russell's a great interviewer who gets into deep topics easily and effortlessly, and with wildly gesticulating hands, and this interview was no different. As Russell says, quote, the main thrust of it, as you can imagine, was me continually going, but yeah, come on, there must be a God. And then he clarifies, it's about the ongoing argument that it's hard to apply the tools of science to realms that may be beyond sensory experience. And how can science claim to be objective as it exists within a capitalist consumer culture that has its own objectives? Good questions. Such good questions and answers that I felt compelled to insert a few ideas into the conversation myself. And first off, there's a whole lot to like about Neil deGrasse Tyson. Even though he and I will disagree on some central things, he comes from his heart, his work is infused with wonder. In this interview, he extols the virtue of what he calls the cosmic view, a view in which the immediate concerns of the individual are replaced by a vision of interconnectedness and our small place before a vast cosmos. So this isn't by any means an admonishment of all things Neil. It's simply a differing perspective in a world in which differing perspectives are valuable, and it's presented with respect. As I've said before on this podcast, when I criticize science, it's not a blanket rejection of all of the very real and very profound benefits that Western science brings to the world. It's specifically in relation to some basic narratives that are put forth by science, either directly or indirectly, that I think could use some revision. For example, that the scientific method is the only valid method of arriving at the truth, that subjective reality has nothing to offer the discussion on truth, that science itself is ultimately objective, and that the proof of science's fundamental rightness can be measured by the progress of technological society, or what some have called civilization. My basic position is that these positions are deeply culturally subjective, Even the whole objectivity thing is subjective. In fact, these positions are so culturally immersed in subjective presuppositions about the meaning of life, existence, and progress that their subjectivity goes unnoticed. And in accepting these subjective positions as the objective truth, I think we rob ourselves of a whole lot of what it has historically meant to be human, and we miss out on certain key elements of the human worldview that have a whole lot to offer humanity in this day and age. So there it is. Today on the Emerald, Airplanes, Epilepsy, and Shamanism, a respectful response to Neil deGrasse Tyson. Here's part one. Airplane, or the narrative of material progress and advancement. So, at a certain point in their discussion, Russell and Neil start talking about the Vedas, 
and about how some people claim that Eastern traditions got there first when it comes to certain aspects of quantum physics. You know, you've had those conversations. The yogis were talking about atoms a thousand years before Western science. Those conversations. And fair enough when Neil says that those who claim the Eastern philosophies got there first maybe aren't aligning Eastern philosophies to their greatest use. I agree with him. There's no need for a one-for-one comparison. Vedic thought doesn't have to describe the atom in perfect detail to be a valid thought system. And it doesn't. Vedic thought, as Neil says, isn't helpful if you want to build airplanes. Again, fair enough, unless you subscribe to certain ancient aliens' views of the universe. But then, Neil lets a little something slip. He says that the realizations that come through Eastern philosophy are not useful when it comes to being put to work in the service of civilization. There's the C word. Civilization. And that, my friends, is about as deep as subjective cultural bias gets. The implication being that human beings exist on a scale of primitive to civilized, and that the purpose of civilization, of course, is relentless material progress, and that cultural success can be measured on how well a culture is able to materially advance. This particular subjective bias has completely informed the worldviews of both Western science and Western religion for hundreds of years, and it sounds, well, pretty colonial. Let's ask this. What if you don't consider the aim of civilization to ultimately be material? There are civilizations who consider their entire purpose to be to keep the earth in balance through song. There are cultures who applied all of their genius towards understanding the intricate web of life that is the Amazon forest and learned to cultivate it and shepherd it hundreds of years before science arrived on the scene and helped develop advanced technologies to chop it all down. Eastern tradition, and I don't think honestly Neil has any idea what a broad brush that term is, so let's get more specific. Tantric tradition saw deep value in a thousand years of study of the direct experience of the heart and mind in meditation. Tantric traditions develop technology, and I will say unequivocally advanced technology, to allow human beings to expand, chart, map the vast territories of consciousness, and to integrate that knowledge and awareness into the simple practice of being a more present person. That is advanced technology that serves civilization. It might not build you an airplane but it might make you a happier human being. Up to you to decide which is the most advanced technology. look deeper at the whole progress thing. The sense of progress is so embedded in us we don't even notice how deep the rabbit hole goes. The idea that cultures might have had profound visions of the way things are without the need to change them is so utterly foreign to us that, as Wade Davis says, when the British explorers, both scientists and missionaries, encountered the aboriginal peoples of Australia, they could not wrap their heads around the fact that the aborigines had no interest in altering their environment. Science, of course, was so steeped in the narrative of material progress that they had to find objective reasons for why other cultures wouldn't automatically share the same addictive worldview. So they found a convenient way to justify cultures who didn't share their same love of ripping apart sacred mountains and vivisecting monkeys. Those cultures were obviously dumber. Yeah, their brains were smaller. White brains were different, clearly superior. 
The extent that science went to prove the dumbness of certain races is, in retrospect, so steeped in bias and so removed from objective reality that it's laughable. But at the time, that was objective science. Of course, in reality, there are as many ways to measure progress as there are views of what it means to be a human being in a vast universe. As anthropologist Felipe Fernandez Armesto says in his book, Out of Our Minds, quote, Notions of progress can mislead. Even inquiries unprejudiced by contempt for our remote ancestors may be vulnerable to the doctrine that the best thoughts are the most recent, like the latest gizmo or the newest drug, or at least that whatever is newest and shiniest is best. End quote. The ultimate progress metric that scientists return to in order to assert the rightness of the advance of material civilization is lifespan and quality of life. We've got it better than people ever have, so we must be fundamentally right. We can jet around the planet at the drop of a hat and don't have to worry about being killed by a mastodon or dying from an impacted wisdom tooth. Well, yeah. And we also don't know how long that lifespan metric is going to last. It's already falling in certain countries, like right here in America. We are just beginning to face the health repercussions of the toxic crap we've been pumping into the atmosphere for the past 50 years. We are just beginning to face the health repercussions of a diet completely divorced from food as nature naturally provides it, stripped of essential nutrients and full of additives, thanks to, well, science. Some might consider a society in which children are obese and malnourished at the same time not terribly advanced. In the 2008 Pixar film WALL-E, Humanity has turned the Earth into a toxic waste dump, and the human residents now live miles above the planet's surface in giant floating malls which they navigate on personalized hovercrafts. Unable to walk around on their own because their bones have atrophied into jelly, so all they can do is shop all day from these floating consoles. Would we consider that progress because they are using complex technology to make it happen? At what point does the progress wave of lifespan and population growth and quality of life come crashing up against species loss, biodiversity loss, environmental collapse? It's harder to make a case for progress on a dying world. I'll say that again. It's harder to make a case for progress on a dying world. Central to the quality of life narrative is also the story that early human beings' lives were an ongoing, brutish struggle for survival. And hey, now we have climate-controlled cars and a hundred varieties of organic corn chips, so we must be getting somewhere. Some studies, quoted by DeGrasse Tyson, show that things have never been better, and in some senses that is certainly true. Your and my chances of being clubbed to death today are far, far less than they were as a medieval peasant in England. But those studies can't reach back into the long, long dawn of human history. A history which we assume must have been exactly as we know it, full of hardship and struggle and war and a relentless quest for domination, just as nature shows will have you believe that nature is perpetually red in tooth and claw. Here's Fernandez Armesto again. Quote, Maybe there was an era, long before the emergence of human sapiens, when life was poor, nasty, brutish, and short, 
and hominids scavenged without leisure for ratiocination. But for hundreds of thousands of years thereafter, all of our ancestors, as far as we know, were relatively leisured foragers rather than harried, hasty scavengers. Did some of those cultures over the long tail of hundreds of thousands of years lead brutal lives and war on each other? Sure, but if the current record on hunter-gatherer behavior is any indication, a whole lot of them also didn't. In fact, many indigenous communities, and I mean communities that still live in an approximation of their former lifestyles, have far more leisure time than your average marketing and communications director in New York, or garbage man in Sydney, or even CEO in Chicago. And surely leisure time is a measure of progress? So deeply embedded is the cultural narrative of what advancement means that, of course, our friend Neil doesn't realize how often he falls into it. Like when he gives the example of a race of aliens to whom human beings seem very primitive, except for maybe Stephen Hawking, who is slightly more advanced, says Neil, because he does physics calculations in his head. Because, right, of course the measure of advancement is a person's ability to do physics equations in their head not the ability, say, to propel oneself into a state of trance, or to be able to merge the individual consciousness into a state of absorption through meditation, or, to use a more salty example, to dip one's testicles in the ocean as the Polynesian navigators did and feel and name five distinct ocean currents at once, or to recite hours upon hours of Vedic texts from memory, or, say, to be happy with things the way they are. And of course, Neil might not have a problem with some of the examples listed above, but it's important when it comes to cultural narrative to note that such an alien civilization could just as easily look at a Kalahari tribesman and say, see, these people are the only ones who learned how to get along with their environment in any kind of meaningful way. They are clearly the most advanced, and the ones flocking to Walmart or dumping toxic waste in rivers, not so much. It's worth asking. What types of progress matter most? What is progress in a love relationship, for example? What is progress when it comes to the environment? We're now in a place where progress might mean undoing a lot of what has been done. And what you're left with when you remove the progress metric is every single culture being equal to the other, with differing shades of genius, each with something to offer. Progress in a dying world might mean who is able to give up the trappings of the consumerist lifestyle and connect more deeply to community. Progress might mean 10 minutes of meditation a day. Progress might mean doing less. Progress might mean an ability to cultivate love and nothing else. Part 2. Epilepsy, or the Narrative of Superstition Here's the story as Neil tells it. In the day when religious philosophies were deeply embedded in Let's Look at Europe, and someone bends over and rise on the ground and frosts at the mouth, it's really obvious what's going on, he says. He goes on to describe the superstitious belief that the devil had invaded the body of that person. The priest comes, brings the holy water, performs an exorcism, and the person gets better. Clearly the devil has gone away. Problem solved. Now, of course, he says, we know that what happened was an epileptic fit caused by brain chemistry. And, as he says, 
Back then, this was something they thought they understood but did not. So science provides, in his words, power over ignorance. Science will tell us this story of triumph over superstition in various ways over and over again. The Dark Ages were dark and full of terrors until science came along and shed light in the darkness. And this story is a valid story. It has truth to it. It's obviously good to dispel certain outdated ways of looking at the world. But it's not the only story. The inherent assumption of indigenous belief as superstition is, let's just say, a big problem. Says Fernandez Armesto, quote, An impertinent assumption, which almost everyone in the West formerly shared, supposes that primitive or savage folk are befogged by myth, with a few or no ideas worth noting. Pre-logical thought or superstition arrests their development, but all human communities have the same mental equipment accumulated over the same amount of time. All in principle are equally likely to think clearly, to perceive truth, or to fall into error. End quote. So the story of superstition is not the only story, and it of course ignores the many, many, many cases where the indigenous systems of perception have been absolutely correct in many cases, more correct than their scientific counterparts. So here's another story. When modern science encountered the San people of the Kalahari, the San people had 50,000 years of cultural continuity, possibly even 70,000. These people knew and know a whole lot more about how to survive, adapt, live, be in tune with their environment than the scientists who encountered them. In fact, they know things about plants that scientists are just now beginning to discover. Here's another story. Meditators knew that meditation calms the mind 2,000 years before science finally acquiesced its value. Same with yoga. Same with time and nature. The list goes on. Here's another story. No person with a remotely intuitive sense of the balance of nature would ever look at a toxic chemical dump spewing into a river and say, that's probably fine. And science did that for a very long time. Here's another story. Ask most people for most of human history if they're remotely interested in building a device that can devastate hundreds of square miles of land, catch atmospheres on fire, and release toxic fallout for generations just because they're curious to see if they can do it, and they'll look at you like you're crazy. Here's another story. Whatever we do to the web of life, we do to ourselves. A phrase uttered in the 1800s by Chief Seattle has far more science in it than the prevailing science of the time. Here's another story. James Lovelock was universally laughed at by science when he proposed the Gaia hypothesis, that the planet functions as a whole organism. Indigenous cultures knew this for centuries. Now, of course, science is finding it to be true. Here's another story. The idea that revelations about the nature of the world should have absolutely no bearing on the ethical practice of an individual, that we should do it just because we can, would be seen as a deep, deep sickness by many cultures on the planet. So you have U.S. government scientists releasing radiation into Polynesian atolls and moving the inhabitants back onto radiated land so they can study them, deliberately letting African Americans die of syphilis so they can study them. The list of ethical aberrations is nearly limitless. In many traditions, the worldview is only as valid as its ability to translate into the personal practice of the individual being. Does it make me more conscious? more loving, more ethical. 
So yeah, there are a lot of stories, and science isn't the protagonist hero that casts light in the darkness in all of them. It is in some, but definitely not all. But it behaves with a relentless sense of its own role in shedding light on the world, deeply in love with its own methodology, and seems profoundly unaware of how culturally subjective that is, or of how religious that sounds, given all the evidence of how science has actually behaved in the world. This cultural short-sightedness is summarized perfectly in science's ongoing attitude towards indigenous knowledge. Even in cases where the indigenous view is right, science can only afford it the rightness that happens as a happy accident. Sociology professor Eva Garut says, quote, The cultural ascendancy of scientific models of inquiry means that indigenous knowledge can be integrated into scholarly discourse only if it is severely pared down sanitized of the spiritual elements pervading the models that birth them. The sanitizing process typically means one of two things. Either indigenous knowledge is presented as a set of primitive beliefs that have been superseded by contemporary factual knowledge, or it is reconstructed without reference to the often contrary assertions of the indigenous carriers themselves as symbolically rather than literally truthful. The first strategy portrays indigenous claims as simply wrong, although possibly interesting, while the second strategy allows them to be right only by denying that traditional people mean what they say. Or, as James Podolsi of Simon Fraser University recently wrote in an article on science's tenuous relationship with indigenous truth, quote, Despite the wide acknowledgement of their demonstrated value, Many scientists continue to have an uneasy alliance with traditional knowledge and indigenous oral histories. On the one hand, traditional knowledge and other types of local knowledge are valued when they support or supplement archaeological or other scientific evidence. However, when the situation is reversed, when traditional knowledge is seen to challenge scientific truths, then its utility is questioned or dismissed as myth. Science is promoted as objective, quantifiable, and the foundation for real knowledge creation or evaluation, while traditional knowledge may be seen as anecdotal, imprecise, and unfamiliar in form. The idea that truth may be arrived at through other methodologies, that subjective interaction with the cosmos can yield all kinds of valuable knowledge, and even gasp, that the spiritual mechanism through which cultures have arrived at knowledge that science now considers valid might be valid too, that there's something inherently valuable about spirit and the states of consciousness in which one arrives there, that is still blasphemy as far as most science is concerned. Which brings us to that whole objectivity thing. We'll call this part three, the narrative of objectivity. I'm going to throw out two premises right at the beginning here, and then backtrack and work my way into them. First premise. Subjective experience has a whole lot to offer the discussion on truth, because reality is experienced subjectively. Second premise. What science calls objective is not objective at all. This doesn't mean it doesn't have value, or its treasured time and place, but it's not, by definition, objective, because there's still a subject involved. Okay, so let's talk about subjective experience. I'm going to make up a term right now. I'm going to call it transcendent subjectivity. I'm going to define it, too. 
Transcendent subjectivity is practiced-induced insight into the nature of the universe achieved through subjective means, which results not only in knowledge of the nature of the cosmos, but that carries over into informing the state of the individual in heart, mind, and ethos. It is knowledge based in the recognized value of the inseparable and permeable relationship of individual and greater universe. And I'm going to return to the example of the tantric practices of India and Tibet. Neil may not know this, but the tantric movement in India has a cultural history and legacy about three times longer than that of modern Western science, about 1,500 years. It has a corpus, a body of work, that absolutely dwarfs the entire lexicon of Abrahamic religious texts. It contains within these texts, and more importantly within its practices, understandings and descriptions of consciousness that are exponentially greater and grander than anything that has been written before or since. Tantra understands thoughts and the agitated currents along which they manifest. It understands how phenomena within consciousness arise and what their fundamental substance is. It has mapped the nature of these phenomena in profound detail. There are tomes upon tomes of differing understandings on the nature of mental phenomena, schools upon schools that debated and refined their views on mental phenomena over hundreds of years. Tantra understands that consciousness has an architecture that can be molded and refined and provides a practice lexicon deeper than anything Neil has probably imagined, whose entire premise is how to shape it and refine it. We're talking about thousands upon thousands of practices, thousands of descriptions of the qualities of consciousness. All the qualities that we perceive within the dome of the skull are qualities that exist within the dome of the universe. Luminosity and darkness, centrifugal and centripetal force, gravity. Consciousness has gravity? Absolutely. Gravity governs tides, and consciousness is a tide. Have you ever had a thought you couldn't pull yourself away from, no matter how hard you tried? That's the gravity of consciousness. Have you ever had a thought that spins into a pinwheel of other thoughts, all emanating from that central thought? Have you ever been caught in a whirlpool of negative thought? That's the centrifugal and centripetal force of consciousness. Have you ever had thoughts that were slippery, you couldn't get a hold on them? Or like geysers? Or have you felt diaphanous textures like nebula? If you really, really observe it, the mind follows all of the laws of thermodynamics. Consciousness condenses in drops or points. It expands in silent explosions. It agitates like hissing foam on top of the ocean. It has silent depths. It bristles. It hums. Have you ever felt luminosity in the skull? The light bulb of a new idea? Have you felt space in the skull? In meditation? When all of a sudden the little things seem not so important and you can see them from a greater perspective, space in the consciousness. You don't have to blast your way into orbit and eject millions of tons of CO2 into the atmosphere to gain the cosmic view. You can sit and breathe by the river instead. Now, the Tantras understand that the only way to possibly understand consciousness is to work within consciousness. Just as the way to work with clay is not simply to understand what it is on a molecular level, but to actually shape it with your hands. Or if you're going to be an explorer embarking on a great journey across the ocean, is it more helpful to speak directly with someone who has traveled the ocean and come back with that glint in their eye of knowledge of unknown lands? 
or to speak with someone who has never spent much time exploring, but can tell you in great detail that the ocean is made up of water molecules. This is the value of subjectivity. Do we need to know about neurochemistry to treat Alzheimer's? Sure. I'm not dismissing the value of that knowledge. But when they now tell us that the best way to prevent Alzheimer's is a life spent dancing, this hints at something. The knowledge of what it is to live in a body as a human being, without ever having to define it from the outside, is valid. Kalahari tribesmen don't need scientific validation of the rituals and rites that have granted them 50,000 years of cultural continuity. To say they do, or even to entertain the idea that that validation is in fact validation of any kind, is subjective cultural hubris. The yogis knew how to calm the autonomic nervous system without having to define it as the autonomic nervous system. The shamans know the real and tangible value of shaking a rattle and singing for hours at a time, because the state of union with the natural world that comes through human ritual, chanting, dancing, drumming, meditation, is profoundly, utterly, and undeniably real. Science can say whatever it wants in response to this, but the fact remains that many of the now scientifically proven insights that stem from indigenous sources stem from insights gained in direct ritual contact with spirit, from subjective experience. So let me throw out an idea from the Tantras. Truth, or reality, is a triplicity that exists between subject, verb, and object. This is the trinity of mystic Christianity, the trinity of Trika Shaivism, the triple goddess of the Celts. Truth is a triple phenomenon. What do I mean? If you want to convey the concept rock, you also need to convey the concept of a subject observing that rock. The word rock immediately implies a subject for whom the rock is a tangible object in time and space, and that immediately precludes the idea of the rock as an independent objective entity right from the start. You can't separate the rock from the fact that there is a subject. Why? Because the very rockiness you are trying to describe is the rock as it appears to that subject. Without the subject, no rock. To us, rock carries a set of assumptions, hardness, texture. But if the subject is, say, space, the rock is an inconsequential trembling of vibration that only occupies 0.0000001% of the perspective of the subject. And if you go deeper and deeper into space, the less consequential the rock becomes, until the play of the entire universe from the perspective of a universal subject might simply be like a luminous pulse and electrons may not in fact carry any of the qualities that we imbue electrons with as subjective observers within the limits of time and space and 80-year lifespans and five senses. So when Neil says that telescopes and scientific gadgetry give us 12 senses, that's interesting. No, not really. Every bit of information human beings can ever process is processed through the five senses, or six if you include proprioception. Every ounce of info we have about the universe is knowledge of what it is to be a subject within that universe. What did the Big Bang look like to the Big Bang itself? What does time look like to time? What does light look like to light? Everything we say about these so-called objective qualities of the universe, we are describing in relation to us. Electrons behave like this, or muons or gluons behave like that, 
Yeah, they behave like that in relation to you. If you say, well, even without an observer, space still exists, you might have to think a little harder. Ask yourself what about it would possibly be spacious without an observer. It might as well be packed into a square millimeter or span the entire stretch of infinity. There's no space without an observer. All of our measurements of time and space are in relation to us. If we were a trillion trillionths of the size of an electron, electrons as we describe electrons wouldn't be electrons. They might be enormous gas clouds separated by trillions of miles of space. So is that space in the electron really, in truth, extremely small? Or is it extremely small in relation to us? If you're a trillionth of the trillionth of the size of an electron, it's not small at all. Everything we talk about in this universe is in relation to a subjective observer. This is so elementary, it's astounding that science is so blind to it. In this way, the old man with the rattle singing to the stars, who knows that reality is what exists in the hum between him, the stars, and the sound of the rattle, has a greater handle on reality, because he knows reality is a triplicity between subject, verb, and object. Okay, yeah, so this basic understanding of the subjective dynamic of reality isn't just good for late-night, mind-bending conversations of philosophy students in the St. John's dorm rooms. It's also good for starting to reflect on the presumed objectivity of the scientist in practice. In his interview, Russell questions the motives of science and its deep connection to consumeristic capitalism. In response, Neil says this, there's no question that what science gets funded is driven by geopolitical forces. And geopolitical could mean economic, could mean militaristic, could mean hegemonistic. But it does not affect what science finds to be objectively true. That answers to a higher power than the funding source. That is nature serving as the ultimate judge, jury, and executioner of an idea. The objectivity itself can't be challenged. Sure it can, Neil. Here's Charles Eisenstein from his beautiful book on climate. Quote, the scientific method, like most religious formulae for the attainment of truth, rests on a priori metaphysical assumptions that we must indeed accept on face value. First among them is objectivity, which assumes, among other things, that the formulation and testing of hypotheses don't alter the reality in which experiments take place. This is a huge assumption that is by no means accepted as obvious by other systems of thought. Or, as Nobel physicist Max Planck said, Science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature, and that is because, in the last analysis, we ourselves are part of the mystery that we are trying to solve. So the assumption of objectivity makes a massive presumption right from the outset that the scientist's aim in conducting the experiment is totally objective to begin with, that all the scientist wants is to understand how things work that there's absolutely no agenda or thought of what the outcome could or should be, which is interesting because most experiments exist to prove a hypothesis, and right in the hypothesis there is ample, ample opportunity to lose objectivity, for an experiment to be colored by what the scientist wants the result to be, or by unconscious forces of culture, or from the very presumed objectivity to begin with. Neil's field of astrophysics may be more prone to pure motivations in its objective quest for knowledge than some of the other scientific fields, 
It's a lot easier to be objective, at least in motive, when one is dealing with subatomic particles and really just wanting to know what's going on. The closer to the Earth one gets into, say, biology or anthropology, the messier things get. The more likely cultural bias is to enter the fray, or racism or colonial narratives on progress. And the fact is that scientific motive has been far from altruistic. In his book The Disappearing Spoon, author Sam Keane takes the reader on a fascinating journey through the creation of the periodic table of the elements. And let's just say that the scientific quest for identifying new elements was far from this lofty vision of objectivity driven by a pure quest for knowledge. It was personal, geopolitical, cultural. It involved massive egos and personal vendettas. It involved falsified data and ruined careers, and a whole lot of subjective bias. But, the scientist cries, the method is still pure. No, the method is always colored by the subject. That doesn't mean it's not valid. Many of the conclusions of science are very valid. It doesn't mean it can't be beautiful. It's just simply not the only valid way of seeing the world, because it too happens in relation to a subject. When you understand a thing, you are understanding it in relation to how it is perceived by a subject. There is zero getting around that. Now, why am I harping on this? Because at the heart of this is the understanding of the value of our direct subject experience of the universe, an experience which, when you leave the subject in the equation, comes around to interconnectedness. For there is no conclusion that could be arrived at that does not also render conclusions about what it is to be a human being actually interacting with the world. When one thing is removed from its system of interconnectedness to be studied independently of the whole system, then you gain a lot of information about isolates, but you've lost something else. As 19th century British poet William Wordsworth said, Sweet is the lore which nature brings. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things we murder to dissect. And what is lost in that homicide? Well, this brings us to part four, shamanism, or what's missing. Okay, so Neil says if you stand a shaman in his worldview next to a scientist and his, not only will he take the scientist, no surprise there, but that he's not sure he needs the shaman. Later on, Russell implies that there's something missing from the scientific worldview, and Tyson asks, what's missing? What is it? The implication here being that science is a complete worldview. Who needs shamans? Look, I'm not going to hold up shamans on a pedestal. There are certainly superstitious shamans. There are charlatan shamans. There are limits within material reality to the shamanic purview. As Wade Davis says, if I get my arm ripped off in a car accident, I'm not going to go to a shaman. But to return to Neil's question, what's missing? What could it be? Oh, I don't know. How about the animate vision of reality? in which subject and universe exist in an inseparable, permeable relationship, 
a vision which has been absolutely vital to humankind for 99% of our history, and in whose absence we are faced with, all of a sudden, the specter of complete environmental collapse. Is that a coincidence? A vision in which the mountain is inseparable from the community that interacts with it daily, so that you could never have a worldview free of interconnectedness that would philosophically sanction and materially develop the tools for the mountain's destruction. How about that? How about the reflection of all this knowledge of material reality into the life practice of individuals, an ethics born from the empathetic experience? so that when a person wants to go sell CRISPR gene-mashing technology on the internet so that anyone can make designer babies in their backyard, there's an innate sense of, yeah, this is not an appropriate thing to do, that anchors curiosity or the drive to see what happens into an interconnected web of cause and effect, of subject and object, of deep reciprocity. Science can inform moral philosophy, says Neil. Yeah, but mostly it hasn't. It's great that science is moving towards a deeper acknowledgement of whole systems, of interconnectedness, a deeper respect for traditional knowledge systems. But along the way, it's very important that science not view their openness as some kind of acquiescence of a superior worldview to an inferior one, that indigenous knowledge systems not be seen as quaint, that the methodologies through which traditional cultures arrived at their conclusions not only be seen as valid if they happen to approximate the scientific method, there is a whole lot for science to learn in the subjective methodologies of the meditator, of the trans practitioner, and the personal empathetic experience of interconnectedness that arises from such methodologies. When science is at its best, it is committed to acknowledging how much it does not know. Where I get uncomfortable is the narrative that science is now the panacea for all global ills, when science itself had a very central hand in creating those ills. How now we're supposed to accept scientists as the saviors of the planet and assume that scientists are the voices of reason and vote more scientists into office, when for hundreds of years, science has been directly responsible for forwarding a worldview in which relentless consumption of planetary resources is progress. And trust me, I don't want evangelicals in office. I would much rather have a scientist in office than the current circus. But what I'd like to see is science with humility. Science that bends an appropriate knee before traditional knowledge systems that have stood the test of 50 millennia. Science that recognizes that its own rejection of ethics and forwarding the narrative of consumption and material progress has historically been part of the problem. Science that sees value in the reciprocity of subject and object. The assumption that the scientific method on its own will somehow get the planet where it needs to be is flawed. Because really the end goal, the measure of that great word progress, is not the material manipulation of reality removed from ethics, but how our direct experience of the cosmos translates into how we are with our environment and with others. Ultimately, it may be that the cultivation of a loving, felt relationship with the planet is the only thing that gets us out of the mess that we're in. There's a meme that's been going around for a while now. It's a quote from former director of the Natural Resources Defense Council, Gus Speth, who said this about some of the environmental problems facing humanity. Quote, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. 
and we scientists don't know how to do that. So I'm going to answer Neil's question by leaving a word hanging in the air, just to give the scientists something to reflect on over the next 20 or 30 years. Neil, what's missing is spirit. This episode contains reference to several podcasts, articles, studies, etc. These include Russell Brand's podcast, Under the Skin, November 1st, 2019 episode featuring an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Eva Garut's Real Indians, Identity and the Survival of Native America. WALL-E, the 2008 Pixar movie. The Disappearing Spoon by Sam Keen. The Wayfinders by Wade Davis. Out of Our Minds by anthropologist Felipe Fernandez Armesto. The Tables Turned, poem by William Wordsworth. Climate by Charles Eisenstein. And Frontiers in Human Neuroscience's lengthy study on dancing and its effect on Alzheimer's, which has been referenced in numerous scientific journals. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash theemeraldpodcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. (music) 